If they're wrestling with an issue that we have helped another team solve, wrestle no more. We've got you. Because I would say we're actually already at war right now. This is, in many ways, a kind of a hybrid of the Cold War and the space race. You could literally reach out to David and I, and by the end of the week, have an online community of problem solvers looking at that problem. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanisbert of the Mad Scientist team, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Trish Martinelli and David Schiff, at-large regional directors for the National Security Innovation Network, or ENSIN. They'll be talking with us today about ENSIN's programs to help the DOD innovate, getting technology across the valley of death, and what it means to be people first. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Thank you both for coming on. Really glad to be here. Thanks for having us. So, Trish and David, you both have a wide range of experience in the military, across the innovation community. Can you tell us both about each of your backgrounds and and what you're doing with uh, Ensign now? Okay. Well, thanks, Luke and uh, Matt. David, great to be here on the uh, show with you today. Um, So, background. I was in the Army for 21 years, HUA, and uh, did military intelligence for most of that. And what I think that did for me in terms of uh, setting the ground work for innovation was intelligence speaks to commanders about indicators and warnings. And, you know, in order to do that, you have to kind of see how things move in the world, how they affect one another and the levers that they push. So that kind of starts you on a journey of what, you know, I think a lot of people now call design thinking or human-centered design in a different way. You know, it may be in in terms or in language that's a little bit different, but I, I firmly believe that my Army intelligence background kind of set my framework for the innovation community. After the Army, I uh, spent a little bit of time just taking some time off, just a few months, and then uh, got back into the national security space, both as a contractor and as a federal employee, working at uh, Wright-Patt at the National Air and Space Intelligence Center, and then out to uh, the East Coast, working for the Joint IED Defeat Organization, starting in Intel, moving to acquisition, and then uh, leaving that position as the deputy uh, director of strategy. Again, I think also kind of leaning back into those indicators and warnings that uh, my intelligence career prepared me so well for. And uh, after a stint at the Office of Naval Intelligence, I joined the National Security Innovation Network, or ENSIGN. We love to use that acronym and confuse our Navy colleagues. Uh, Joined ENSIGN in February of 21 as the deputy director of the collaboration portfolio, so helping run programming for the organization. And then in October of last year, became a regional director at large with my good friend David Schiff, uh, managing mission partner relationships around the national capital region, and for me, also UCOM and AFRICOM. Thanks, Trish. Um, So while you were talking about intelligence, I was thinking about um, the fact that a lot of us who come from kind of support roles in the military uh, end up having a broader understanding of our organizations than sometimes the uh, kind of the uh, main line officers do. So I was a uh, logistician in the Navy. We call that supply corps. 
um, as a supply corps officer on an aircraft carrier and a submarine. Um, I learned like you about intelligence and kind of understanding and um, kind of being able to uh, synthesize information and get it to leadership uh, in the logistics part of the Navy. You have to listen and pay attention and understand almost every division and department on the ship you're on, or uh, if you're in a shore command, same thing, understanding those uh, departments that are working around you. Uh, and a lot of it's about connection. So it's not just about uh, you know, buying the right things for the airplane or for the combat system, but understanding what is the root cause? What's the real problem here? Because sometimes the part one of your sailors wants to order is actually not the right part after all. Um, so I kind of got into that headspace back in the uh, early 2000s when I joined the Navy. Uh, I got out in 2007. I went to the banking sector at a bad time. So I uh, came back to the Navy as an acquisition professional about a year and a half later and uh, spent about a dozen years in Navy acquisition. And uh, that kind of led me to innovation in a few different ways. I was in a uh, executive fellowship program that allowed me to go to Silicon Valley and spend some time with Defense Innovation Units. And uh, I actually also spent some time on the waterfront and uh, the Gulf Coast, trying to understand a little bit more about how does the Navy supervise and uh, ensure the best quality in our shipbuilding practices. And that all got me to Naval X. Um, this would be uh, early 2019, working with Chris Wood and Mr. Gertz, the Secretary of the Navy for R&D. And um, all of that led me to Ensign, where we continue to try to connect basically friends across the uh, defense departments, other federal organizations, academic and industry partners, and try to make sure that everybody in our network knows about um, what are the best ways to do things well and the best way to do them in a, an efficient, effective way that makes work better and uh, you know, make, makes our defense department more effective. Those are great introductions, and we're, we're very happy to have both of you on here today. And, and David, you talked about a couple of the organizations that I want to ask you guys about. Um, there's several innovation organizations and efforts that sprung up in the DOD. You mentioned a couple of them, Naval X, DIUX. There's also Softworks and AFWorks. So can you tell us what's the crux of Ensign's mission and what sets your organization apart from others in that ecosystem? I'm really looking forward to hearing David's answer, but because he's kind of a modest uh, guy and I know him very well, I need to say that he didn't just kind of like mm, wander over to Naval X. He was actually one of the founding members and set the framework for continued success that goes on today. So uh, with that clarification for my modest friend, I will let him continue. And David, you mentioned uh, Hondo and, you know, he's a great friend of the uh, Army Mad Scientist program. And we uh, actually had him on a podcast with Zach Davis uh, from uh, Livermore National Labs as well. All right. I've got some catching up to do on the Convergence podcast. I've been trying my best to keep up with Naval X's as well, the Connects podcast. I'm glad so many uh, of our colleagues are getting into this space so that we can hear the voices of not only leaders across the defense organizations, but also folks in the academic and lab side and in industry as well. And kind of Matt's question, Ensign is, uh, you know, essentially a problem-solving network. That's how we describe it ourselves. Uh, we're trying to empower and enable uh, our defense mission partners, uh, our academic partners, and our industry uh, potential partners in most cases. In many cases, we're trying to help academic teams who have started to understand 
uh, a little bit more about defense, become commercial entities that can then create dual use ventures and help the defense department in new and cutting edge ways. A lot of them have exposure through programs like Hacking for Defense uh, to some of the uh, best experts in America and even in other countries uh, for cutting edge tech. So really uh, it's all intended to expand networks and to make it easier for folks who are either um, on the front lines or on the waterfront to get what they need faster and for the acquisition workforce to be able to better connect with the warfighters and all those other communities as well. Yeah, and um, if you'll uh, allow me to make a shameless plug for a nonprofit organization that David and I both love and support, the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum is in this mix as well. But what I would say essentially is that there needs to be different innovation organizations because of different innovation cultures and different missions. So while someone may kind of, you know, cast a jaundiced eye at the wide, you know, range of programs within the Defense Department innovation ecosystem, there's a couple of things that people have to remember. Funding is important. Prioritization is important. And the mission that is supported is also very important. So while some people may say, do we need all these software factories? I think the simple answer would be yes. And that is because they answer to a commanding officer at some level that has mission priorities. And within the scope of their budget and authority, they can look at their software factory and prioritize their work. So, you know, that's one thing to keep in mind. So, you know, when we see Naval X, when we see AFWorks, when we see Ensign, when we see uh, McWill, when we see all of these great centers popping up, remember that they support different warfighters. And in the same way that we don't ask questions like, why do we have both a Marine Corps and an Army? Um, you know, the, the answer is that we will support the warfighters that we are aligned with. So where Ensign is unique in this value proposition is that we are the innovation uh, catalysts for the entire Department of Defense. And that could be in business casual or in BDUs. So it doesn't matter if you are working in an office at the Pentagon or if you're at the deck plates, as uh, David likes to say. So, you know, it really, it gives us the flexibility to work with all of our partners within the Defense Department, rather than just specifically aligning with one service or one command. And I think that's really, um, for me, that that's what makes the work at Ensign even that much more exciting. I think that's a great point, Trish, about serving these different kinds of needs um, and Ensign's ability to really tie all these together. When you talk about different services having different innovation, we're looking in mad scientists at innovation at the edge as well down to the tactical units. Um, and I think those focus, those different focus areas are really important. Ensign has stated on, on your website that you're focused on people, ideas, and technology in that order. And I think that's really important because what does that look like in an environment that, you know, if I can slander the innovation ecosystem, can be overly focused on technology and material stuff? So I love this because, I, I mean, honestly, if you are a leader at any level, if you're really a leader, you know that people come first in every mission that you do. And it's no different in innovation. So why does technology get all the buzz in innovation? Because it's easy. If you need a new widget, you go, you know, into a production process, whether it's software or hardware in your hand, you can go in, uh, you can have a blueprint to go in, come out with a prototype, and voila, you've 
quote unquote done innovation. But the harder part is the change management aspects and the people part. So this may be getting a little bit ahead of our conversation, but one of the reasons why uh, the Department of Defense is both leaning towards innovation and also struggling with it is at the heart of innovation. There are two key things that go against classic military or Pentagon bureaucracy. And the first is to ask questions about why we're doing things to question authority. <laughs> we're trying to import this idea of questioning authority into a system that has run for generations on not questioning authority receiving orders, executing on orders, and moving out smartly. So that's one thing. And the other thing is we're looking around the civilian sector and we're seeing all these advances in ways of doing things, whether it's a policy issue or a technology issue. We're looking at the private sector and saying, wow, how is it that Google can go from ideation to product line in 180 days and we can't even get a concept brief delivered to a decision maker in 180 days? <laughs> so, um, you know, we're looking at that and asking ourselves, why can they have that and we can't? And this gets back to some tricky acquisition stuff. And, and David, I'll kind of leave this as an asterisk for you to follow up on, is that if we lean into commercial sector innovation, through the lens of classic DOD acquisition, we will look like we are air quotes wasting money because we might start more than one technology to solve one capability. You know, we may fund 10 and only one gets to the finish line. So when we go back to our stakeholders, the American taxpayers, which we all are, when we go back to our stakeholders and say, look, we found the, we found the invisibility cloak. We started with 10 different versions and here's the one that we're going to buy it's going to look like we spent a lot of money on the other nine versions that didn't make it. And that is what happens in the commercial sector that is unusual in the DOD. Yeah, and I think uh, to add to the, uh, the piece on people, you know, I think a lot of the uh, idea of you know, the Manhattan Project and the space race, a lot of that concept, sometimes people think that was just uh, a few hundred or a few thousand folks in one building, but we know from studying history, all four of us, that um, that was tens of thousands of people across sectors, um, across the United States and sometimes abroad, uh, bringing in scientists who were refugees from Europe uh, and in incorporating them. Uh, we've Many of us have seen the movie Hidden Figures or read that book and understand there were a lot of disenfranchised and uh, discriminated against people who were in the background doing really hard work. And, uh, you know, we're trying to make sure that we, in a more equitable and fair way, include as many types of people with as many backgrounds as we can, because I would say we're actually already at war right now. This is in many ways, a kind of a hybrid of the cold war and the space race. And like Trish said, I think we can figure out the technology piece. We probably need more help in the Defense Department than we used to uh, with that. But uh, I think we can figure that out. But inculcating a, a mindset of uh, asking really good questions um, and then understanding that there's still a chain of command in the military, I think that is really our big impetus. And um, a lot of those mindsets can be taught through human-centered design and through agile practices and uh, both for software and for teams, right? So that's, that's what's really exciting about 
uh, bringing things like our bootcamp program um, or what Naval X has, the Workforce Agility Team and the Centers for Adaptive Warfighting, and what you all are doing, the Army Mad Scientists Team, you know, really spreading uh, useful, productive ideas to our workforce. Right? That is our main drive. I think it's a really good segue, David, because, uh, you know, you, you talked about the need to focus on people and the idea that, you know, like you said, it wasn't just a, you know, a couple thousand folks sitting in Houston that, that got us to the moon. It was this cross-functional teams, really, before we started calling it that. Um, and I think that's an important part of innovation because it's not just scientists and engineers or, um, you know, software designers. It's across the board of operators and analysts and everybody kind of – and executive decision makers and stakeholders kind of figuring all this out together. So if I gave you, you know, we're in this talent war in a, in a resource constrained environment, we're not going to get everybody we want all the time. But if I gave you guys, you know, the capability to grab 50 or 100 folks for, for innovation push, what kind of people would you want to get in, you know, in terms of uh, character traits, skill sets, expertise, you know, what, what would you want to get if you're looking at a major innovation push? Um, I think that some of the things that we were looking for in my, uh, in my last job at Naval X uh, were kind of just flexibility and uh, adaptability, kind of an optimistic realism and uh, kind of the drive to spread good ideas, not to hoard them um, or to spread best practices uh, and lessons learned, not to hoard them. And I think those are really the key characteristics um, kind of that service leader mindset, but for everyone. And, uh, and kind of a culture of competitive kindness, right? Like we are trying to get to the best ideas. So that's going to require us to actually rack and stack ideas and, and money and contracts, right? Um, and sometimes get rid of old things. And that those are painful things, but you can do that in a way that's both respectful of what was already there, respectful of the ideas that get to go to the backlog for now. Um, because we do have war fighting priorities, so we can keep the country and the world safe. I 100% agree with the list that um, David just described. Um, I also come at this um, kind of with my own lens and background as a person, um, you know, of Hispanic heritage, a Latinx woman. Um, I also come from, you know, very working class uh, community and um, not a lot of people in my uh, family who have college degrees. So, I really look to um, find underrepresented voices, you know, especially voices who have maybe been in the workplace, but have not had the privilege to look at a leader and say, why is it we're doing this again? So, you know, there is a, there is a freedom that um, people who have privilege enjoy and they don't think about. You know, um, they don't think about why it's it's fine for them to be in a meeting and say, oh, you know, I don't really think this is a good idea. Let me describe to you the way that I see it. Um, that That is a privilege that not everyone in our workplaces enjoy. So when I look for people to bring into innovation, I really look through a lens that's very personal to me and very connected to the experiences that I've seen in the workplace of good ideas, great ideas that rest in the minds of people who don't have, you know, for a variety of reasons, they don't feel comfortable either questioning what the decision is or forwarding their own ideas because they have one, maybe never tried it before, 
or maybe they tried it in an environment that was not professionally healthy enough to give them psychological safety to actually run through the idea. Now, that is not to say that every idea that gets tabled by an underrepresented voice is the the idea of the day. Um, But what happens when you run people through the thought exercise of a system of systems, like David was saying, racking and stacking and creating priorities? I mean, you know, if we had unlimited money and time and, you know, we would all do all of the things that we want. But when you understand, when you get underrepresented voices and ideas into the table, into the spotlight, and they themselves are able to run through the decision-making process, and maybe they come up with an option that, you know, at the end of the day, they're like, oh, actually, my idea won't work. But what I'd like to do is take the elements of this that are good, snap link them onto that idea that David uh, is working on and contribute in that way. And even if their idea is not the idea that crosses the finish line, the skills that are needed to present ideas in new ways and different situations are cemented. And and that's what I would really look for and and encourage. I think that's really important point, Trish, because um, as you guys have noted again, on your website, even diversity as empowering innovation in the organizations and driving them, not not just some check in the box. It's truly um, beneficial to the organization and innovation to think differently, see those perspectives um, and really get outside of the typical echo chambers and kind of self-talk we get into. I was going to just add, um, Hondo had us you know, bring in a guest speaker a few years ago, Franz Johansson, who does TED Talks about um, how diversity and inclusion actually accelerates innovation. And his talk, which you can get in, uh, you know, just Googling his TED Talk, you know, is very powerful because he shows in quantifiable ways how it's not just a feeling that diversity is good, but that more diverse teams produce more uh, capable outcomes and more exciting outcomes and also bring up, uh, you know, if you're, if you're looking at it from a capitalistic point of view, then uh, diverse teams are more productive and end up getting you more gains uh, from a financial point of view, from the defense department's point of view. If you're an army unit and you've only been talking with army folks and you're struggling with that challenge, uh, you'd probably be surprised what the Navy, uh, the Space Force, or the Coast Guard might be able to bring to the table because of an adjacent problem that they've dealt with. Yeah, there's there's a lot of good stuff to take from what you guys just said, and I want to highlight uh, two points before we get to the next question. And and the first thing is, is David, you mentioned that kind of healthy competition, um, and you know, uh, my co-host and I have have had that healthy competition since we've kind of been in Mad Scientist, and it it helps us, you know build that program up because we're constantly trying to, in a, in a very fun and respectful way, outdo each other. And Trish, you mentioned, uh, you know, finding those underrepresented voices and finding those divergent opinions. And I mean, that's sort of one of the mandates of what we're trying to get across is talk to the people, David, like you said, you know, if we're only talking to army people, we're only getting army answers. Talk to the people we don't normally talk to and have them challenge what we're doing and see if we can make something better, see if we can come up with that. So um, those are really important answers to, to, to some of the bigger questions that, that the DOD is, is facing. Um, so, so, Trish, you were talking earlier about how Google can go from you know, concept to product in about 180 days. And, and on, in the DOD, it's a much longer timeline. And you've both spoken before about getting technology across the valley of death. 
Can you expand on what you mean by that and how Ensign can accomplish this? Yes. Um, this is one of my favorite things ever. And if you guys can't hear, I am smiling ear to ear because I love to talk about the Valley of Death, first of all, to help people understand what it is. So I'm just going to level set for everyone who's listening, depending on whether they have an acquisition background or not. So um, just to keep this very simple, there are types of money that the DOD spends on different areas and different projects. And the 6.1 through 6.3 money is what most people will understand as ideation to prototype. So if you have a napkin pitch about this invisibility cloak that I'm obsessed with, um, you can take that from, you know, like 6.1 research money all the way up to 6.3, where you're kind of ready to go into production. But then getting into 6.4 through 6.7 money, where you're actually building it, you're building it to scale, you're building it to specificity to meet more fighter needs, that is a different type of money. It comes from a different spending authority and it, it's just, it's different. I mean, there's lots of good ideas that compete to do big business in the DOD and not all of them make it. Not all of them should make it. But here's what we've done to ourselves within the Department of Defense is that we've over bureaucratized this process to the point where really timely, well-needed, whether it's support policy or people for warfighting needs are not making it from that 6.3 to 6.4, which is known as the Valley of Death. So that's level setting on the terms of reference for the Valley of Death. So what we have that's unique at Ensign, and I, I love the way that this is designed and the way that this um, is aligned. So David and I speak often of how we're related to the Secretary of Defense. So we work for the Secretary of Defense and um, our next higher headquarter is the Research and Engineering Undersecretary, Heidi Shu. And then our next higher headquarter is the Defense Innovation Unit. So we work hand in hand with the Defense Innovation Unit. We will find the early stage ventures and get them ready to go to that 6.4 money and then lift them up to the Defense Innovation Unit where they have 6.4 money. <laughs> and they can actually take some of these um, you know, winners, certified winners, and pass them over that valley. So that's what I think is really unique about Ensign's mission and our alignment and our capabilities is that we get to be the farm team. We're like out there finding the talent. I mean, who doesn't want to be the A&R guy for, you know, uh, Capitol Records? We're going to find all the young, you know, princes out there. And probably I messed that all up. I don't know who actually recorded Prince's albums. But, you know, we get to go out there and we get to, like, listen to all the concerts if you want to put it into a different context. We get to hear all the up-and-coming artists. We get to see all the new people that are wanting to get into this space and finding a way to build an on-ramp for them. So that's what I really like about Ensign's ability to get after the Valley of Death. Yeah, I think uh, helping people see kind of the path ahead of them is, uh, you know, a lot of people use the term Sherpa, and I know that that, uh, that term is uh, possibly insensitive, so uh, I apologize if it is taken that way, but um, we used to use that at NavalX to talk about kind of helping someone um, on their journey, right? And if that journey is from ideas to uh, prototyping to utilization in the fleet or the force, that is the journey that we're on helping scientists and engineers who have been working hard on something and maybe uh, in a building at Navy research labs or army research labs or air force research labs, like all these brilliant folks. And uh, if you've ever been into those buildings, they're very proud of the work they've done. And some of that work really should be uh, in use right now. It shouldn't be trying to find a transition pathway. It shouldn't be 
five year, five years behind its useful timeline, or uh, you know, it's possible that we need it on the front right now, right? I mean, we're in the middle of uh, of delicate engagement at this moment in Europe, and I think some of those technologies we need on the front lines are already in our labs. We could use the help of university and commercial teams to get those uh, over to the warfighter, and I don't think it always has to be into a program of record where it's a permanent fixture in the army's arsenal, for example, sometimes it, they just need it today. Right. And that's more of the SOCOM uh, mindset, I think, but uh, even for the Navy where we buy exquisite uh, expensive systems of systems that have to be integrated carefully, there's still a lot of uh, places for innovation to translate into the fleet. And uh, I, th I think that's really important. Uh, a lot of our acquisition workforce knows um, all the different milestones and structures that are in place to do that, but we can help them improve those processes. We should, and we're listening when they say uh, there's a specific form that's slowing me down, or there's a specific kind of meeting that we just can't get out of our own way. That's the kind of thing that Ensign can help you with. I think that's a great segue, actually, because I'm curious for our audience, especially, you know, we have a wide audience, but um, we got a lot of members of the Army as well that are listening, whether that's um, soldiers, leaders, warfighters, even civilian uh, enablers like us, uh, you know. What are some of the programs that Army units out there, individual soldiers, uh, what are some of those programs at Ensign that they can get involved in? Some of the programs that can connect soldiers, uh, sailors, airmen, Marines, and guardians now to uh, the talent in the university ecosystem. Uh, one of the best ones that we deal with a lot is hacking for defense. Um, you know, we have a summer internship called the X-Force Fellows. Hacking for Defense is a semester and Capstone is a year. You can think of all of those as ways to engage uh, student research teams of different levels from undergraduate through PhD level with the requisite guidance from your know, researchers and faculty members. Uh, you know, I was just in a Hacking for Defense uh, mid-course check-in last night at Georgetown. And it is amazing in just a few months uh, the amount of research, uh, ethnographic interviewing, and understanding they've come to on topics as difficult as supply chain risk. Uh, just really amazed by those teams. The best part about that for a soldier is getting to uh, understand, okay, you know, these students are coming from uh, master's in security studies at Georgetown. I've never considered that degree. Maybe that could be something I use my GI Bill for. Maybe that's something I need when I go to work at, uh, you know, one of the requirements teams at the Pentagon, you know, those are the kinds of things that I think they can get exposed to by engaging with those teams. And like we talked about earlier, they also get exposed to different mindsets, um, or this may be the way that they can hear about what the Navy is working on from the Army point of view or vice versa. So I think Hacking for Defense, X-Force, and um, our capstone programs are three really great entry points. I'm thinking of, you know, Trish <laughs> 20 years ago sitting around a, you know, platoon room kind of like lamenting the fact that we can't have MRE heaters, you know, reliably delivered with our MREs. So uh, that that is like indicating how long ago I was in the military. OK, so you know, there are some problems that people just wrangle with. And what they really want to do is they want to have an easy button. So I would really recommend any Army soldier who's listening to really look at Ensign's source program. 
This is such a fast turnaround. This could be something where you are in a Monday morning meeting with your leadership at your battalion, and you've decided that, you know, your mission readiness is being impacted by fill in the blank problem. You could literally reach out to David and I, and by the end of the week, have an online community of problem solvers looking at that problem. And you control the guest list. So if you want to just have people within your unit, within your battalion looking at that problem, you control the guest list. If you want to work with us and have people from academia and industry and other military services and other military units included in that whitelist for that source iteration, we can do that for you. I mean, how, how great is it is if you could, you know, if you could wrestle with something on a Monday morning in, you know, a team room and then the next Monday morning, you could be looking at solutions or answers that were suggested by professionals at Google, at Amazon, at Tesla, at the University of Michigan, at Stanford, at Berkeley. How would that revolutionize the way we're able to solve problems if we could go from problem, you know, curation to potential problem solutions within a number of days? We have a program for that. It's called Source. And I'd like to invite people to put me to work for them in using that. Yeah, and I think an uh, important point, a lot of folks have been exposed to these um, idea ingestion platforms, and um, we aren't going after quantity. We're going after quality, but we're also here to make sure that we match make those ideas with solution providers from wherever they might be. So, um, you know, when we... We're just sourcing problems up in the Pacific Northwest with uh, Joint Base Lewis McCord. We see a list of 15 or 20 problems. Our objective is to get those problems to the right owner and not necessarily just to say, hey, we got 20 problems because that doesn't help those soldiers. And one of those soldiers, I could just uh, hear in his voice how frustrated he is by those things. And he really wants to make a difference for the Army. Uh, he's in field artillery. And um, what I love being a Navy guy, talking with Army guys, and I know Luke feels this way too, is I get to learn more about the Army that we you know, have always been uh, competing with, right, <laughs> internal in the U.S. And I want to add also that if you do one of our programs, you work with uh, one of our teams, and you get that prototype off the napkin into, heaven forbid, a PowerPoint, and now let's say your, uh, your commander is like, hey, I really want to do that thing you have. But hey, it's still on a piece of paper. It's still on a screen. What are we going to do next? We have a program called Maker that gives you access to over 320 maker spaces, including the one Naval X resides next to. And uh, help them either with metal, plastic, or other, you know, it could be 3D printing, it could be wood, but getting that prototype into life, um, into a testable way. And then if it gets far enough along, we can get the labs or the PEOs involved and take it to a test event. So, I mean, there are ways to get your idea off that napkin or other places where we know ideas go. Yeah. And um, so just doubling down on that, one of the first kind of uh, pilot programs for the maker program that we run at Ensign was a landmine training device. If that doesn't have army written all over it, I don't know what does. But yeah, I, I just have to uh, really, I'm smiling ear to ear talking about the maker program. It's really, really awesome. Oh, and David was talking about how when you're working with our programs, you're working with a whole network. And that's true. We recently had an experience just about a month ago where we were sitting in a Navy wardroom with a senior leader from the Pentagon as she described to us 
her frustration of not being able to see the programs that people were working on from the industry side, academic side, and the DOD side. And she was like, oh, if only there was a forum or a tool. And she started to describe a tool that David and I have been working with and knowledgeable of through the AFWorks um, uh, network and their CIBR program. And uh, by the time she finished describing the tool that she needed, we said, oh, by the way, that tool already exists. So you do not have to any longer be frustrated by that. And that's what we hope to offer to soldiers at every level as well. If they're wrestling with an issue that we have helped another team solve, wrestle no more. We've got you. Those are a lot of great programs. And let's say, for instance, my Army organization wants to partner with Ensign on one of these programs. What is the cost to my organization to do so? I think free is the average cost. Um, I think one of the best things about that is that you can get that idea off the ground. There's no risk. Your, your unit should not get upset with you for talking to us. We are an OSD research and engineering organization under defense innovation units. Um, we are here to help you. And we legitimately mean that. Uh, we want to help you get that idea going. We can help you with the uh, strategy, the human centered design piece. We have a boot camp program. That's not going back to boot camp and shaving your head. Um, it's, just a quick 24 hour uh, program uh, utilizing some of our university assets and our program manager. That's, uh, that's one amazing way to get in touch with us and just kind of get started. And like Trish mentioned, we have online communities, um, you know, all sorts of different ways to engage. So I think that, you know, since the cost is nothing at the beginning, that's, uh, I think that's a good thing to keep in mind. Now, Trish would probably bring this up in most of our conversations that, Let's say you get that napkin idea through to prototype and you've spent nothing so far. If you want to scale that across the whole army, we're probably going to need a PEO's help on that program executive office. If it's a benefit to PEO soldier, I can see them getting it into the POM process uh, and the POM, which is the program objective memorandum. So we do have to deal with the FAR, the federal acquisition regulation, and we do have to deal with other transactions. We do have to deal with reality, right? <laughs> so it's, yeah. But, but the bigger point is a lot of folks keep their ideas to themselves. I'm going to pick up a little bit on the technology theme. So we did start the conversation by saying people are most important and solidly in that camp. I am a people person, uh, so agree with that. But we have some amazing programs that really help us get after technology at the National Security Innovation Network. So sometimes, um, sometimes a soldier is somewhere and they're like, okay, why am I dealing with this left-handed pair of scissors? They're dealing with a piece of technology. It doesn't make any sense. Um, and then we've got people, as David's mentioned, in great labs that are dealing with right-handed scissors and they're ready to go, but they just don't have a military partner to match that with. And then there are really cool things like uh, David and I actually kind of sat in as judges and advisors on a program recently called Vector, where we take our technologists that develop technology solutions around the DOD to stated mission partner conundrums. So in this example, Luke, you could be in the motor pool. Oh, God, sorry for you. But you could be in the motor pool and you could be struggling with something that is a widget or a technology or something of that nature. You could bring it into one of our programs. We could have pitches that come out of that. And then what happens in our vector program is that they get experts like this to come in and evaluate and make those pitches stronger so that these companies that were formed 
in order to build these technological solutions have a path to further develop that. You know, working within the DOD, sometimes we have a tendency to get caught up in what we see as major focuses and, you know, suffer from what a a recent guest we had on, uh, Paul Barnes, called presentism. Um, So, what are our blind spots? What are we missing? What is the DOD and, and the Army, but the larger DOD, not thinking about enough when it comes to innovation? Yeah, you, know, you have millions of people in this organization, both in the uh, in uniform and out uh, in the you know, civilian side, the reserves and our defense industrial base, uh, and then our academic partners. It's a pretty enormous uh, pool of talents and ideas and capabilities and a lot of them are just waiting for a chance to make either their organization better or their base better or the process that they work with every day better. And they're not always empowered or enabled to do that. And uh, I want to echo what Michael Cannon said on LinkedIn a few weeks ago to the DOD and Don and Army and Air Force CIOs, which they responded in many ways on LinkedIn, which is they cannot do some of these things without the basic IT needs that modern American companies provide without question. So those are updated computers, uh, streamlined cybersecurity, reliable networks, wherever you are. And that should be a given in CONUS, at least inside the United States, that should be given. Um, Overseas, it's harder, but we have a lot of companies and partners trying to help us with that in austere environments as well. But yeah, we have friends in the Marine Corps reserves who one hour from Chicago, are forced to use Wi-Fi at Starbucks off base because they don't have what they need to be able to do their training and administrative work on base. And it's just, you know, that is very frustrating for a lot of folks. And, you know, sometimes IT is not even great at the headquarters organizations, right? So, uh, you know, I think that basic uh, level of need is not being met and needs to be. And then, uh, yeah, facility improvements. I know it's always a back burner item, but, you know, people when they do have to go into work, whether it's to a skiff or just to an office, that place should be pleasant enough to work in, right? It shouldn't be like, oh man, I got to go back to that. It shouldn't be like Shawshank, right? Like, like, I think that we should expect more of ourselves. And some of that is just unleashing creativity. Some of it is dollars, right? But some of it's priorities. And I think taking care of our people needs to be beyond just something we say. David, what was that uh, three-word uh, statement that Michael Kanan, uh, a guest of the podcast, kept repeating for the LinkedIn piece? Fix our computers, right? Fix our computers. And I, I think Michael, who was our you know, Air Force AI lead for a while, I mean, I, I follow him with um, a lot of excitement because he's got great ideas and he really has connected well with his branch of service, which... You know, I always feel like the Air Force is trying really hard to take care of its people. But if the Air Force isn't taking care of its IT assets, are the rest of us? And I'm not going to answer that. But uh, yeah, that's that's one way to unleash creativity and innovation is give people modern, updated IT assets and then the software tools that they need. Uh, you know, I, I, I understand that we are worried about cybersecurity and we should be. But we also need to let people have access to modern tools that allow them to collaborate real time. Okay, so there's a term in design thinking that we love, and I think it's an improv as well, the yes and. So we, as a warfighting culture, we have traditions, and those traditions are valuable, and they bind us together. They're at the heart of what we do. So the yes and, if we can 
understand our traditions, be proud of where we've come from, our lineage and our heritage. Yes, and also look at new ways of doing things, not as an either or. We don't have to become Silicon Valley. We shouldn't become Silicon Valley because Silicon Valley is better at doing that than we are. And we don't have to offload the fact of all of our proud traditions, all of the things, all of the war stories from our history as warfighters. So let's yes end that, find the best of what we can take on board and really, you know, be proud of where we've come from. You know, when you think of Hamburger Hill or Hacksaw Ridge or the Battle of the Bulge, there's no way that anyone in this fighting force today should look back at that and not be proud of the sacrifices and the courage. So let's yes and a lot more. Those were really great points. We appreciate you guys coming on and answering the tough questions. Uh, now we're going to get into rapid fire questions. And this is where that healthy competition comes into play, because we're going to judge you on your answers for all three of these. We, we always ask the same questions to all three of our guests. Um, and we'll go Trish first and then David, because that's the way you're lined up on my screen from left to right. No favoritism. Uh, first question is, what is a trend or technology that keeps you up at night? So a technology that keeps me up at night is TikTok because uh, it, it's cute and funny and so irresistible, yet it has this wicked hook trail for cybersecurity, and that keeps me up at night. Um, so, you know, like yeah, 98% of the people under 18 that I know have that on their phone. So congratulations, uh, you know, adversarial actor. You now have uh, hooks into the next generation of warfighters. David. The trend or technology that keeps me up at night. Well, I watched all the Black Mirror episodes. So lots of them, lots of them keep me up at night, um, really. But I think the thing that continues to be a problem on the internet, um, in addition to the misinformation, is just the comment and message board uh, feedback people give, um, including even on our favorite social media like LinkedIn. Uh, the lack of kindness and the lack of courtesy, the lack of etiquette that I see on there, I think my grandparents um, taught my family better. And I know they taught a lot of our families better. And I'm surprised, disappointed and frustrated by how quickly people get uh, aggressive, hostile, rude, accusatory, and, you know, self-righteous in the way they respond to people on these things. Like if you guys had a message board for your convergence podcast, I would be expecting trolls at the bottom of that page because it's, you know, and I don't know if they're paid by the Russians or if they're just rude Americans, but I just think that that whole thing, it's like we either have to have those forums and then um, kind of regulate that, or we have to turn them off. And I think it's a sad reality that, you know, that that's really just a trend that I see as like a lack of courtesy and etiquette. To answer your question, David, are they paid Russian trolls or just, you know, jerks essentially? Uh, yes. So you, you probably have, you have a little bit of both. And I think that's why I have in my in LinkedIn headline is respectfully disruptive. And I think it's a great point that you make because we kind of shut down conversation. As soon as we come at it um, in this attacking uh, offensive mode, um, we're shutting down conversation because you're going to put people on the defense and, um, um, so I think it's important to, you know, I, I say a lot of times, 
sound so hippie-ish in a way sometimes, but empathy is so incredibly important when you're engaging in these things. Um, so I think, you know, you have to be open to the criticism, which is what we try to do, um, but also be willing to engage in kind of a respectful um, and considerate way. It's amazing what a little bit of anonymity and virtual distance will will do to people. Yeah, one one way to check yourself, I think, is to ask your significant other or a friend, like, hey, I'm, I'm kind of in this, what seems to be a escalating heated engagement on whatever, name the platform, what do you think? And a lot of times they'll say, do you even know who this is? And then you're like, I shouldn't be engaging in this. Or if it's really important to you, take it offline with them, like offer like, private message. Let's have a discussion. And um, many times when I've tried to take those things offline, that person disappears. Right. I actually, uh, this morning, spent a little bit of time, uh, Daniel Holter, one of uh, our fan favorites here in this group, um, posted on LinkedIn that he was surprised to find that he had over 3,000 followers. I'm kind of surprised he doesn't have 30,000 followers, frankly, but he uh, reposted his how to LinkedIn you know, like a, a life hack guide on how to LinkedIn. So I could not recommend it more. Uh, very in line with what you guys are saying here. Okay, so this one is going to get a little personal now. So keep that in mind when you answer this question. What is something about you that most people might not know? Okay, I'll go first. Uh, I My first car was a motorcycle and I still ride motorcycles. So, you know, if I show up in your office in blue jeans and uh, knee-high boots, it's not just a look, it's a function. So uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a motorcycle rider. All right, follow-up question. What is your current motorcycle? I am actually shopping and David and I uh, found one through our trip to Norfolk that I uh, want to look at. So I, I'm looking at a couple different Indian models, uh, but my last bike was a Honda Shadow 750 and it was beautiful. Awesome. See, come down to Hampton Roads, the gift that keeps on giving. Okay, David. Sir, uh, something about me that most people might not know. Uh, interestingly, uh, like Trish, I actually uh, was a motorcyclist. I had a Honda VFR 800 when I was in uh, Seattle, still with the Navy. I kept it for about five years. Uh, it was cherry red. It was a beautiful bike, and I do miss that. Something else people don't know about me. Not everyone knows that I've I've been to over 30 countries and I've gotten injured in almost every single one. So uh, almost all self-inflicted uh, kind of stupid things I've done. So my favorite one was uh, before I knew how to rock climb and repel, I was in Argentina, kind of in the middle of nowhere in the mountains. And um, I trusted my guide. I spoke Spanish, so it wasn't a problem that he was speaking only Spanish. But I asked him a few questions. He said, don't worry about it famous last words. And I repelled without really any knowledge of what the lines are for. And I burned my fingerprints off near a waterfall. So he couldn't hear me as I was screaming. And then at the bottom, he gave me a thumbs up and said, do you want to do it again? And I was like, no, I just burned my fingerprints off basically. And the entire long hike back to the van, I had to keep dipping my hands in the cold river because they were on fire. So uh, that was my favorite, uh, in retrospect, favorite injury besides cutting a toe in half in Costa Rica with a machete. As soon as I heard this was a problem with repelling, I had a feeling something was going to get burnt. And, and that just thinking about that is like the worst feeling in the world. Although I bet chopping your toe off with a machete or nearly chopping it off with a machete is probably pretty close, right? It was pretty bad. Yeah. We'll hear about that one next time, though. Yeah, we're, we're, on, we're on to our final question here. 
Trish, what is your favorite movie? Oh, you know, I have a raft of favorite movies. You know, it kind of depends, like favorite rainy day movie, favorite, you know, end of week movie, that kind of thing. But one one of my favorite movies in that raft is a little known gem with uh, Gwyneth Paltrow from the late 90s called Sliding Doors. And it is this um, story of her, a, a period of time in her life. And it diverges at this point where she either gets on the subway and makes it home to find her boyfriend cheating on her, breaks up, starts a new business and goes one way, or she um, misses the subway and she has to take a taxi and she misses the fact that her boyfriend is cheating on her. She stays in the relationship and life unfolds. And then at the end of the movie, these two life stories that are happening in you know tandem kind of reconverge to wrap up the end of the movie. Why is this a cool movie for me? Um, to see like how those little moments in time can change the direction of a person's life. And just to uh, just some of the classic uh, comedy and rom-com uh, moments in that. So little known gem called Sliding Doors. That's, uh, that's one I'll put on the radar. There's a very subtle joke in an episode of Psych, if anybody's watched it, where they talk about sliding doors. And I haven't seen it, so the, the joke... It's just the fact that they're referencing it that is supposed to be funny, and the fact that it's a, a Gwyneth Paltrow vehicle is, is how they refer to it. But your five-minute, uh, five-second synopsis of it is actually more interesting than anything I've ever heard about it in the past. So this might be something I'm going to check out now because I thought it was just your standard rom-com. It sounds like there's there's more to it than that. All right, David, what is your favorite movie? Like Trish, I have a lot of trouble with this question. Actually, probably harder than like the Valley of Death question. Um, I, I'm going to just cheat and give, go with three uh, that I love. Goodwill Hunting um, gets me every time. Uh, you know, I just think it's that relationship uh, between you know, Robin Williams and Matt Damon's characters and just, you know, just the authenticity of that movie uh, and the speeches in that movie and the fact that those guys wrote that when they were really young in their careers. And I think a lot of us in, in this uh, podcast would love to get together and write a script and then see that become one of the best movies of all time in my view. And then uh, Amelie and uh, Shawshank Redemption. Those are two of my other favorites. I thought there might've been some foreshadowing from your earlier comments when you referred to uh, yeah. going into work as, as most, going back to Shawshank. Most, most DOD facilities as Shawshank. Yeah. There's a, Shawshank yeah. is just one that whenever it comes on, if I'm, especially if I'm traveling and I flip on the TV and it ends up on TNT or something, I I see it and I cannot stop watching it. It's just every single time an amazing movie. Well, it's it's been phenomenal having you guys on the podcast. Uh, we're we're big fans and and really friends with uh, Ensign and just having you guys on here is like just uh, as per usual talking to old friends. So really appreciate all the fantastic insights. Where can people follow you guys at? Uh, to look for work uh, of what's happening with Ensign and where can they follow you at personally if you're on Twitter or LinkedIn and stuff like that? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn as Trish Martinelli, just a smushed up word with a dash difference maker. So follow me on LinkedIn. That's a great way to message me, especially if you've got questions about Ensign that you haven't heard answers to here. Or you can email me T Martinelli, that's Tango Martinelli, M-A-R-T-I-N-E-L-L-I at ensign.us. Yeah, and I'm um, also a big LinkedIn user, David P. Schiff. Um, it's David, as it's normally spelled, P as in Paul, S-C-H-I-F-F -F at LinkedIn. And then uh, 
eshiff at ensign.us. And then Ensign is on LinkedIn and in several different forums. Um, our website's ensign.mil. Um, and I do think our email addresses will be shifting that way as well. All right. Awesome. Appreciate it. And uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having us. And uh, thanks for the really great questions. And Trish, an honor as always to be in the same virtual room with you. Well, tell everybody at Naval X I said hi. And thanks, guys, for having us on. Can't wait to see you again. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guests, Trish Martinelli and David Schiff, for talking with us today. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter at ArmyMadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating or review on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you accessed it. This feedback helps us to improve future episodes of The Convergence and allows us to reach a bigger and broader audience.